0: Section 11 of Mother Earth, Volume 1, Number 2, April 1906. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Campbell Shelp. Mother Earth, Volume 1, Number 2, April 1906. Section 11, The Old and the New Drama by Max Baginsky. The inscription over the drama in olden times used to be man look into this mirror of life your soul will be gripped in its innermost depths anguish and dread will take possession of you in the face of this rage of human desire and passion go ye atone and make good even schiller entertained this view when he called the stage a moral institution it was also from this standpoint that the drama was expected to show the terrible consequences of uncontrolled human passion and that these consequences should teach man to overcome himself. To conquer oneself is man's greatest triumph. This ascetic tendency, incidentally part of chastisement and acquired resignation, one can trace in every investigation of the value and meaning of the drama, though in different forms. The avenging nemesis, always at the heels of the sinner, may be placated by means of rigid self-control and self-denial. This, too, was Schopenhauer's idea of the drama. In it, his eye perceived with horror that human relation became disastrously interwoven, that guilt and atonement made light of the human race, which merely served as a target for the principles of good and evil. Guilt and atonement reign because the blind force of life will not resign itself, but, on the contrary, is ever ready to yield itself to the struggle of the passions. Mountains of guilt pile themselves on the top of each other, while purifying fires ever flame up into the heavens. In the idea that life in itself is a great guilt, Schopenhauer coincides with the teachings of Christ, though otherwise he has little regard for them. With Christ, he recognized in the chastisement of the body a purification of the mind, the inner man, who thus escapes from close physical intimacy, as if from bad company. The spiritual man appears before the physical as a saint and a Pharisee. In reality, he is the intellectual case of the so-called bad deeds of the human body, its path indicator and teacher. But, once the mischief is accomplished, he puts on a pious air and denies all responsibility for the deed. Wherever the idea of guilt, the fear of sin prevails, the mind becomes traitor to the body. I know him not and will have nothing to do with him. Whenever man entertains the belief in good and evil, he is bound to pretend the good and do the evil. And yet the understanding of all human occurrences begins as with the Zarathustra philosopher, beyond good and evil. The modern drama is, in its profoundest depths, an attempt to ignore good and evil in its analysis of human manifestations. It aims to get at a complete whole, out of each strong, healthy emotion, out of each absorbing mood that carries and urges one forward from the beginning to the end. It represents the world as it reflects itself in each passion, in each quivering life not trying to confine and to judge, to condemn or to praise, not acting merely in the capacity of a cold observer, but striving to grow in oneness with life, to become colour, tone, and light, to absorb universal sorrow as one's own, universal joy as one's own, to feel every emotion as it manifests itself in a natural way, to be oneself yet oblivious of self. The modern dramatist tries to understand and to explain— Goodness is no longer entitled to a reward, like a pupil who knows his lesson, nor is evil condemned to an eternal hell. Both belong together in the sphere of all that is human. Often enough it is seen that evil triumphs over good, while virtue, ever highly praised in words, is rarely practised. It is set aside to become dusty and dirty in some obscure corner. Only at some opportune moment is it brought forward from its hiding place to serve as a cover for some vile deed. We can no longer believe that beyond and above us there is some irrevocable, irresistible fate, whose duty it is to punish all evil and wrong and to reward all goodness, an idea so fondly cherished by our grandfathers. Today we no longer look for the force of fate outside of human activity. It lives and weaves its own tragedies and comedies with us and within us. It has its roots in our social, political and economic surroundings, in our physical, mental and psychic capacities did not the fate of Cyrano de Burgerac lie in his gigantic nose? With others, fate lies in their vocation in life, in their mental and emotional tendencies, which either submerge them into the hurry and rush of a commonplace existence, or bring them into the most annoying conflicts with the dicta of society. Indeed, it is often seen that a human being, apparently of a cheerful nature, but who has failed to establish a durable relation with society, often leads a most tragic inner life should he find the cause in his own inclinations, and suffer agonizing reproaches therefrom, he becomes a misanthrope. If, however, he feels inwardly robust and powerful, living truly, if he crave complete assertion of a self that is being hampered by his surroundings at every step, he must inevitably become a revolutionist. And, again, his life may become tragic in the struggle with our powerful institutions and traditions, the leaden weight of which will, apparently, not let him soar through space to ever greater heights. Apparently, because it sometimes occurs that an individual rises above the average and waves his colours over the heads of the common herd, his life is that of the storm-bird, anxiously making for distant shores. The efforts of the deepest, truest, and freest spirits of our day tend toward the conscious formation of life, toward that life which will make the blind raging of the elements impossible, a life which will show man his sovereignty and admit his right to direct his own world. The old conception of the drama paid little or no attention to the importance of the influences of social conditions. It was the individual alone who had to carry the weight of all responsibility. But is not the tragedy greater, the suffering of the individual increased, by influences he cannot control, the existing social and moral conditions?' And is it not true that the very best and most beautiful in the human breast cannot and will not bow down to the commands of the commonplace and everyday conditions? Out of the anachronisms of society and its relation to the individual grow the strongest motives of the modern drama. Pure personal conflicts are no longer considered important enough to bring about a dramatic climax. A play must contain the beating of the waves, the deep breath of life, and its strong invigorating breeze can never fail in bringing about a dramatic effect upon our emotions the new drama means reproduction of nature in all its phases the social and psychological included it embraces analyzes and enriches all life it goes hand in hand with the longing for materially and mentally harmonious institutions it rehabilitates the human body establishes it in its proper place and dignity and brings about the long-deferred reconciliation between the mind and the body. Full of enthusiasm, with the pulse of time throbbing in his veins, the modern dramatist compiles mountains of material for the better understanding of man, and the influences that mold and form him. He no longer presents capital acts, extraordinary events, or melodramatic expressions. It is life in all its complexity that is being unfolded before us, and so we come closer to the source of the forces that destroy and build up again, the forces that make for individual character and direct the world at large. Life as a whole is being dealt with, and not mere particles. Formerly our eyes were dazzled by a display of costumes and scenery, while the heart remained unmoved. This no longer satisfies. One must feel the warmth of life in order to respond, to be gripped. The sphere of the drama has widened most marvellously in all directions, and only ends where human limitations begin. Together with this, a marked deepening of the inner world has taken place. Still there are those who have much to say about the vulgarity contained in the modern drama, and how its inaugurators and following present the ugly and untruthful. Untrue and ugly, indeed, for those who are buried under a mass of inherited views and prejudices, The growth of the scope of the drama has increased the number of the participants therein. Formerly it was assumed that the fate of the ordinary man, the man of the masses, was altogether too obscure, too indifferent to serve as material for anything tragic, since those who had never dwelt in the heights of material splendor could not go down to the darkest and lowest abyss, Because of that assumption, the low and humble never gained access to the center of the stage, they were only utilized to represent mobs. Those that were of importance were persons of high position and standing, persons who represented wealth and power with superiority and dignity, yet with shallow and superficial airs. The ensemble was but a mechanism and not an organism, and each participant was stiff and lifeless, each movement was forced and strained. The old fate and hero-drama did not spring from within man and the things about him, it was merely manufactured. Most remarkable incidents, unheard-of situations had to be invented if only to produce externally an appearance of coinciding cause and effect, and not a single plot could be without secret doors and vaults, terrible oaths and perjury, if Ibsen Gorky, Hauptmann, Gabriel d'Annunzio, and others had brought us nothing else but a liberation from such grotesque ballast from such impossibilities as destroy every illusion as to the life-import of a play. They would still be entitled to our gratitude and the gratitude of posterity, but they have done more. Out of the confusion of trap-doors, secret passages, folding screens, they have led us into the light of day, of undisguised events, with their simple, distinct outlines. In this light, the man of the heap gains in life force, importance, and depth. The stage no longer offers a place for impossible deeds and the endless monologues of the hero, The important feature is harmonious concert of action. The hero, on a stage that conscientiously stands for real art and aims to produce life, is about as superfluous as the clown who amused the audience between the acts. After all the spectacle of one star display, one cannot help but hail the refreshing contrast shown in The Man of Destiny by the clever Bernard Shaw, where he presents the legend hero, Napoleon, as a petty intriguer with all the inner fear and uneasiness of a plotter in these days of concerted energy, of the cooperation of numerous hands and brains, in the days when the most far-reaching effect can only be accomplished through the summons of a manifold physical and mental endeavour, the existence of these loud heroes is circumscribed within rather limited lines. Previous generations could never have grasped the deep tragedy in that famous painting of Millet that inspired Edwin Merkham to write his Man with the Hoe. Our generation, however, is thrilled by it, And is there not something terribly tragic about the lives of the great masses who pierced the colossal stone cliffs of the Simpline, or who are building the Panama Canal? They have and are performing a task that may safely be compared with the extraordinary achievements of Hercules, works which, according to human conception, will last into eternity. The names and the characters of these workmen are unknown. The historians coldly and disinterestedly pass them by. The new drama has unveiled this kind of tragedy. It has done away with the lie that sought to produce a violent dramatic effect through a plunge from the sublime to the ridiculous. Those who understand Tolstoy's power of darkness, wherein but those of the lowest strata appear, will be overwhelmed by the terrible tragedy in their lives, in comparison with which the worries of some crowned head or the money troubles of some powerful speculator will appear insignificant indeed." That which this master unfolds before us is no longer a plunge from heaven to hell, the entire life of these people is an infernal. The terrible darkness and ignorance of these people, forced on them by the social misery of a dull necessity, produces greater soul sensations in the spectator than the stilted tragedy of a corneille. Those who witness a performance of Gerhard Hauptmann's Henel, and fail to be stirred by the grandeur and depth of that masterpiece, regardless of its petty poorhouse atmosphere, deserve to see nothing else than the wizard of oz and again is not the long thunderous march of hungry strikers in zola's germinal as awe-inspiring to those who feel the heartbeat of our age even as the heroic deeds of hannibal's warriors were to his contemporaries the world stage ever represents a change of participants the one who played the part of leading man in one century may become a clown in another entire social classes and castes that formerly commanded first parts are today utilized to make up stage decorations or as figurantes. Plays representing the glory of knighthood or minnesingers would only amuse today, no matter how serious they were intended to appear. Once anything lies buried under the bulk of social changes, it can affect coming generations only so far as the excavated skeleton affects the geologist. This must be borne in mind by sincere stage art, if it is not to remain in the stifling atmosphere of tradition if it does not wish to degrade a noble method that helps to recognize and disclose all that is rich and deep in the human into a commonplace, hypocritical and stupid method. If the artist's creation is to have any effect, it must contain elements of real life, and must turn its gaze toward the dawn of the morn of a more beautiful and joyous world, with a new and healthy generation, that feels deeply its relationship with all human beings over the universe. In a report of the Russian government, it is stated that the conduct of the soldiers in the struggles of the streets was such that in no instance did they transgress the limit which is prescribed to them in their oath as soldiers. This is true. The soldier's oath prescribes murder and cruelty as their patriotic duty. If government, were it even an ideal revolutionary government, creates no new force and is of no use whatever in the work of demolition which we have to accomplish, still less can we count on it for the work of reorganization which must follow that of demolition. The economic change which will result from the social revolution will be so immense and so profound, it must so change all the relations based today on property and exchange, that it is impossible for one or any individual to elaborate the different social forms which must spring up in the society of the future. This elaboration of new social forms can only be made by the collective work of the masses, to satisfy the immense variety of conditions and needs which will spring up as soon as private property shall be abolished, it is necessary to have the collective suppleness of mind of the whole people. Any authority external to it will only be an obstacle, only a trammel on the organic labour which must be accomplished, and beside that a source of discord and hatred. Kropotkin. End of section 11 Recording by Campbell Shelp